Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hi, everybody. Welcome to New Book in African Studies. I'm Susan Thompson, your interviewer for today. I'm speaking with Caroline Wanjiku Kihato. She wrote an incredible book entitled Migrant Women of Johannesburg, Everyday Life in an In-Between City. It's published in 2013 by Paul Grave McMillan in the Africa Connect series. It's a wonderful book about home and not home eloquently told about the hopes and dreams, fears and hardships of migrant women trying to make life and livelihoods in inner city Johannesburg. The result is an honest, raw, and poignant ethnography of life in between home and away, urban and rural, local and global, and of what mobility means to those who seek the security of home in an unwelcoming place. Caroline, I'm really delighted to be able to learn from you today. Welcome to Newburgh's Network in African Studies. Thank you, Susan. Um, It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks so much. My first question is really just for you to summarize your book for our listeners, your argument, your findings, and then we'll move into the various chapters and uh, arguments that you make. Okay, thank you, Susan. Um, My book, Migrant Women of Johannesburg, um, Everyday Life in an In-Between City, is really about this group of amazing um, migrant women who had moved to Johannesburg for various reasons um, from Nigeria, Cameroon, um, Rwanda, Kenya, Uganda, the DRC, Zimbabwe, and who were trying to make a life in the city, in, in Johannesburg. And, and this was new in part because um, since 1990, you know, Africans could travel to South Africa, where beforehand um, there was a ban on travel mm-hmm. um, as part of as part of um, you know uh, resistance against or um, apartheid, sort of solidar- African solidarity against apartheid, and so this and and so this was was about how women found love, how they found work, how they um, how they you know they found joy in the city, but also how um, they, you know, they they felt real sadness and and hostility in the city. Um, yeah, I, I try I try as much as I can to kind of humanize the city through the lives of these women, in in ways that I feel um, um, sort of uh, bring life to to Johannesburg and bring life to the you know bring life to their 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 lives in Johannesburg. That's a great answer. Thank you. Um, you know, what, what is in your background or in your history that brought you to write a book about migrant women? Yeah, it's interesting because I myself am a migrant woman who, mm-hmm. left, who left Nairobi. I was born in Nairobi. And after my first degree at the University of Nairobi um, in the early 90s, um, in the mid-90s, I... I realized I was unable to get a job. It was during a time of structural adjustment right. programs and 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 the real crunch in the economy. And so even um, even 
even even myself who had a first degree just you know graduates were struggling for work and it was at a time that South Africa had opened up and and I thought to myself that I really need to go to South Africa I had had a dream of being there simply because of all the movies and the books that I'd read about um, about apartheid and and really felt a a form of solidarity with with black South Africans, and so it was a real dream for me to 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 turn up in Johannesburg, and so part of it is I, there is a biographical register to sure. my book, um, but 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 the, the other part was was a real was a real um, question, a real sort of question around. What 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 does the city mean to us as Africans? Um, what does migration mean, and how do we how do we navigate this sort of global world and 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 the city? How, um, and and what stories can we tell um, of our of our time of of this 21st century sort of um, artifact? What stories can we tell? That 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 resonate with other story, global stories of mm-hmm. urbanization and migration, and so a lot of this was really to um, to to surface some of these stories that are usually raised in 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 global discourses. Why did you opt for an academic book rather than perhaps a novel or some other form of writing? What brought you to the academy? Um, I, I, I sort of, <laughs> I, I sort of became a student, a graduate student rather reluctantly. Okay. I, I, <laughs> Love it. I had no options. <laughs> I had no options. Of course. So I went, I found myself in South Africa, you know, where I thought I would get a job and, you know, and I would make a life for myself, but realized very quickly that this was not possible. I needed the right visa to stay. I needed a whole, a whole, you know, and I, I just, I just couldn't find work, um, and not legally. Right. So after after do, having after doing a stint um, as a as a street vendor, <laughs> yeah, on the streets of Johannesburg, I I decided that this was not going to get me anywhere, and and I walked into Vic University, and I and and really wanted to study development urban development and and um, decided that this was the way I could get a visa to stay in South Africa. So so I walked into this thinking if I really want to be here, to live here in South Africa, I need to get my, my visa situation sorted out. So that's when I did my master's in, in urban planning and then after that I, I I pursued a PhD in sociology. So so this was this was really my 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 PhD thesis, which I turned into a book. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a great book. I, the one thing that I really admire about it is the preface. I always think good feminist writing has a very frank um, preface and, you know, it situates you as a producer of knowledge and you relate how you relate to your subject and your subjects, to use that language. I prefer participants in my own work, but the Academy, of course, flattens emotion. Um, I think what really struck me is how honest and raw it was, like not raw in a um, an unfettered sense, but raw in just like a refreshingly raw account of what brought you to the research. And I think anyone interested in feminist research methodologies can learn a lot from your um, j- 
just the preface, how you situate your your questions. And I was really struck by your multidisciplinary or interdisciplinary uh, background and the way in which you situated yourself in the canon of feminist researchers. So I wondered, um, did you struggle to embrace empathy with your committee or were there any sort of like structural barriers in the academy to writing the dissertation that became the book? And if so, what were they? And if not, like, give us some hope over here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, I I think I had, I was in the best place. Mm-hmm. Um, and and um, I was in the Department of Sociology at the University of South Africa. And I had a group of, of really important mentors who embraced this interdisciplinary who embraced this, the, the 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 idea of the personal mm-hmm. as a as as a as an entry point into understanding society, into understanding theory, into understanding ourselves, and and I think I was I was really lucky that 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 I had the um, the freedom to explore this in this this project in in a way in in whatever way. I wanted, of course, it had to be academically rigorous. Of course, you know, was, you know the the, met- the methods needed to really, you know, there was there was no um, there, there were no so there was no leeway on the sort of rigor and and, and the fact that it needed to 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 withstand um, you know the, the academic um, rigor, but there was I was in a I was in a space that really encouraged. Kind of interdisciplinarity, and and without that encouragement and that freedom, I don't think I could have written a book like this. Um, not not for the academy, at least. Yeah, of course, because yeah. I think yeah. what I found so compelling is how you sort of frame the question of belonging in your own life and your preface as like a trick question, quote unquote, and that really I think set. The, the tone and, and how you embrace the humanity and the and the, the kindness and courtesy you um, sort of reflect on the page. So for, for me, that was, um, I wondered if your book could be produced, you know, in the United States or elsewhere. Um, there was a, just an honesty that I find refreshing in the academy. So that's one reason why I wanted to um, spend some time with you today. But also one thing I found so interesting was the way you toggled between methodologically prioritizing voice, you know, the experiences of the women you consulted, the women you befriended in some cases, women you knew from your life from, uh, as being a street vendor, but you also spoke, focus on the unspoken. So how did you deal with that sort of methodologically, definitely, but also theoretically? Um. You know, a, a lot of a lot of feminist literature points to the idea that women women women's ways of communicating are not necessarily always the dominant ways. You know, yeah, um, writing um, or speaking. You know, especially particularly with African women, there are ways in which women communicate. Um, that are completely nonverbal, mm-hmm. um, and oftentimes it's 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 you know it's a flash of the eyes, it's a nod, or it's a you know mm-hmm, and <laughs> the way that 
And depending on the tone of that, mm-hmm, you know whether it's approval or whether it's disapproval. Right. And and in many ways, I wanted to bring these these ways in which women communicate, these ways in which they tell their stories, and with these, the ways in which they are in community um, to the fore. Um, and and it was part of my quest, really, sure. in writing this book. To 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 uncover or to to reject the sort of erasure that that migrant women um, the erasure of migrant women in cities the erasure of African cities um, oftentimes African cities are considered ungovernable or chaotic or in crisis and mm-hmm. they're either they're either seen as these spaces of blight that need to be developed or or valorized as these spaces of innovation. Mm-hmm. And my, my experience of, this, of, the, of the African city, and I've lived in Johannesburg and Nairobi, um, was not that. My experience of the city was that there, there were these everyday mundane things that we do. We wake up, we fall in love, we have our first kiss, we have our first, you know, yep. you, you know, you do. And, and I wanted to tell the story of the city as, as a story of 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 every day of life, you know, yeah, of life, and as a story that could be of a city in Paris, of, of Paris, you know, or of New York, mm-hmm. and part of, and 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 in another way, it was also about sort of surfacing the lives of women who are usually seen as victims. So right. you know, a lot of the women that I worked with were refugees or you know had escaped um, a crisis, you know civil war in their homes or economic crisis and and usually and oftentimes they're seen as um, as as victims either you know in need of help or of people who are taken from their host society they come here and they take our men and they take our um, our our jobs, etc. And I and and for me, I wanted to really use the everyday lens to humanize the experience of the city and to humanize the migrant women in it, and connect and connect their experiences to experiences elsewhere. Well, I think you did a really incredible job in that. Even like the very first. Um, you know, page, three pages, actually, of your introduction, you clearly center the agency of these women. Like, they make choices to get to South Africa. So maybe they aren't the choices that you or I would make, but it doesn't invalidate or raise any questions about the choices that they had available to them and the ways in which they exercise their agencies. I thought you did um, a really incredible job of just centering them as humans and as complex beings. And when I was reading your book, it made me think of Erica Boris's work on complex political victims. I'm thinking like in my classroom, I like to pair her work with mm-hmm. writing like yours because it really gives students the sense that victimhood is often assigned. <laughs> it's very rarely um, a form of identity. Of course, sometimes it is, but more often than not, it's misunderstood by the by the academic. I think we we need a victim to, you know, save if you know what I mean, and your 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 focus on the unspoken and the way you know, thinking about hair salons and like the power of kinyosi and so on, 
um, across the continent, but in Joburg in particular, I thought was just a a fascinating form of like authorial control. Because of course, like you're the author, you're writing the book, but you're co-producing it with these women and your use of the camera, those visual methods that you brought in, I thought was a really um, powerful way to present their stories. And of course, the images are presented throughout the book, which I also appreciated. Often academic publishing just sticks them in the middle and they're disconnected from the text. It can be disruptive. So the book is also beautifully produced. And this is my next question, sorry for the long lead in. Um, you know, giving voice is obviously important to you. What advice would you have for researchers pursuing similar projects in which they want to center voice, not only practically, but ethically, methodologically, and also epistemologically? Um, that's, an, that's an interesting question. For me, I always, you know, coming into communities like this, I, I particularly this one, this, you know, migrant women, um, I recognize myself as being a part insider because I have a history. That's that's how I started out in Johannesburg. Mm-hmm. But of course I'm, but, but I'm, of course I'm not totally inside because I have I have climbed the ranks. You know I'm not university. I have a visa. You know mm-hmm. <laughs> there are all these other. I I, I didn't escape um, war. Um, and and what I found was was. More than anything else, I learned to listen. Sure. And this, and this was really really interesting. We we held um, we used to I together with I'm sorry I'm sorry that was my together with 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 a colleague an artist colleague um, Terry Kurgan we held these workshops. So you, you you mentioned the visual aspect of my method right of my method where we would ask women to take photographs of a life a day in a life um of and then and then we discuss them at workshops and we realized coming into those workshops how incredibly important it was that women told their stories and told their stories in 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 their own time you know because obviously it, it took us a while to get going and and over time there was the need to share. It, it was share testimony um, of of where they've come from, how they live, mm-hmm. what their feelings are, um, and as we gained and and as we gained trust, um, they 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 opened up. And one of the things that we realized was, we, you know, Terry and I were completely um, unprepared for some of the trauma that. That came, that emerged, and so we realized that we had to link, um, link the women at the workshop with 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 psychological services, you know, so that so that we, you know, experts could hold that space for them. Mm-hmm. So I mean, all this to say is, you know, especially when you're dealing with marginalized groups. Um, um, with 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 people who have been through a lot, mm-hmm. we're often not we're often not um, we don't have the skills to to handle everything. 
and and we need as as part of you know the university part of our curriculum part of our ethics um, sort of uh, procedures or whatever we need to think about how we we support some of we support um, our research participants um, when when um, when they come when when they're when 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 they're unable to hold that space for them, particularly when we're talking about trauma. So yeah, and and we always feel we always feel inadequate, don't we? Oh Even yeah. That, yeah. You know, it's 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 an unending self-reflective question. You know, how can I be better? How can I do better? How can I ensure that in the way that I behave and the way that I talk, speak and the way that I listen, that I honor um, and 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 I honor the people who have so willingly given me their time. Well, it's so interesting. Thank you for your answer, because of course, listening is absolutely part of voice, or at least I think so as well. And of course, to develop the rapport and to build these relationships um, is a lifelong commitment in many ways. And as we both know um, from our own academic work, you can't really change the lives of the women you're studying or the people you're studying. So it becomes a, an ethical, I think, impractical, methodological question of how do we give back? Can we make promises to give back? And sometimes, of course, all we can do, as you know, just hold space and allow for human processes to be human. There's, you know, you must give a lot of time and you must be mindful of what they need more more so than what I think, you know, the researcher or the research team needs. And it really points, your book, I think, is a really good example of the limits of ethics checklists. And, you know, you must have um, more than a legal commitment to ethics. You must have an ethical sensibility that pervades the design and... <laughs> the implementation and the write-up and the dissemination and everything that goes into a book. And I thought your book was really um, powerful in that way. And one thing I loved in each of the chapters, particularly chapter two and chapter four, you take the single stories of women, Rosine from Burundi, Linda from Zimbabwe, and you situate them as fully functioning, living, breathing, but equally flawed human beings, um, teaching us how making do teaches us about gender, how making do in the everyday teaches us about migration, and of course, how making do teaches us about the, you know, visible, invisible, the formal, informal, and that that constant tension of liminality, I think, is really um, the strength of your book. So when you were writing it, did you liminality was something that came up from the women or was it something that you had before uh, you entered the field, so to speak? <laughs> it was certainly not something I had before I entered the field. And it started right at the beginning. You know, I mm. would go out into the city and, and you know, ask, you know, approach women who were sitting by the streets, um, bending or whatever they were doing and, and sort of say, you know, do you have time? This is who I am. This is what I'm trying to do. Do you have some time for me to talk to you? And so they'd say, yes, yes, um, I'm, you know, I'm available now. Mm-hmm. And at the end of our conversation, I'd say, would you mind if I followed up with you and I came in a few, you know, few weeks time? And, and they'd always say, and this was, <laughs> this is 
this is no no word of a lie. Mm. They'd always say, um, you know, I might not be here next week or I might not be here in two weeks' time wow. because I'm planning to be uh, gone. Mm-hmm. But, you know, and this became the refrain, you know, I'm planning to be gone, but so I'd say, okay, that's fine, but I'll check on you in a couple of weeks' time. And they would be there in a couple of weeks' yeah. time. And I'd say, again, you know, and they'd say again, oh, you know, um, this time I'm really gone. And and this became very very interesting to me because I I thought that and I would you know probe why why would you it's like no no South Africa is just a place of transition I'm leaving um, for better sites in Europe or America wherever it was that they were going or sometimes they'd say oh I'm going back home mm-hmm. so it came to me that actually what they were doing was not living <laughs> in Johannesburg yeah they were rather they were there physically. But they always had this romanticized idea of what they left back home and and this future that they would have, which was never in Johannesburg. And that's how it that's how I kind of started to explore this idea of liminality. What mm-hmm. does it mean to live in a city? And in many in many cases, you know, they, they have they're now married, they have children there. Right. It's more even more difficult to uproot, etc. Um, what does it mean to to live in a city and not and not see yourself um, see your future there right. and not even live there? <laughs> and so that's when the idea of liminality sort of sort of came to be, and and that's how I explore I explore the city through this kind of liminal lens, because the everyday was really this 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 um, this search for a better future somewhere else. Or this hunkering for 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 of a past that is no longer. But you, I think you captured it really well because you introduced this concept of like self-worlding, and then you relate it to like thresholding, like that image of like stepping through the threshold of the of the door from the outside to the inside, and the mm-hmm. the literature review of like thresholding, and you know the the uh, the your ability to. Uh, let us, you know, you explain, we understand processes of flows and flows, of course, in the globalization literature. You know, it's people, it's capital, it's goods. But when you look at it from the perspective of these women, the imaginary of globalization and the reality of, you know, trying to be a global citizen or a mobile citizen, I guess, more correctly, is so interesting. And those are two chapters that really captured me. You're one on social death and the idea of... um mobility and social death is combined. And then, of course, you know, your chapter, chapter five on xenophobic violence. I wanted to dive into those two. Um, what? Mm-hmm. Yes, I wonder, um, how does social death and social mobility work in the context of women's migration, as you ask in your in your third chapter? Mm-hmm. You know, it was, it was interesting, and it also came, came down to... Um, so an experience I had myself, um, so I, I started out as, you know, a, a street vendor, mm-hmm. um, and and I had a return ticket and I needed to go home, to Nairobi. And I remember having absolutely no money or so little money, but still trying to buy all kinds of gifts people. Of course. Because I was coming from South Africa, you know. And also, I was really trying to look like 
a diff, you know, look different because, you know, I needed a new shirt or I needed new shoes or whatever it was. Because when I got home, there was this expectation of, you know, oftentimes it's self-imposed <laughs> self sure. that I would look different. That because I had been to South Africa, because, you know, I've been to this other place, that I would come home, this this person who sh who looked like that, you know, who looked better, who had climbed the social ladder in a way. And this idea of 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 um, of climbing the social ladder and these kinds of as the, the expectation that you look different was really, or that you look better or that you're doing well mm -hmm. was really a, a very important sort of story running through um, the women, well, you know, the, the women that I spoke to, and it would be that you know, oh, I for example, one of them really had struggled to support her children. And, you know, it, there came a time when I got involved with her and I said, you know, what do you think, when she asked me for help, and I said, what do you think about going home? Because, you know, then maybe we can try and see if we can't raise some funds for you mm -hmm. to go back home. And she said, absolutely not. Going home would be shameful. And what she meant was that going home in her condition, she was down and out. She didn't have any 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 money. She didn't have any capital to start a business. But that this was going to this was going to be shameful to her because her community expected different of her. Sure. And this was and 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 sort of this idea of of shame and and social sanctions um, played out in in a lot of the um, the stories that the women, the women told. Mm -hmm. And and part of it was they had to and 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 this is a story that is a story that all immigrants have is you know not all but you know a lot of immigrants sure. have the story of like you know you want to to show that where you are you're doing well you can support your family you can send money you've got fancy car etc and so people you know women lived in this in this sort of. Um, in between. where in between <laughs> right where they would send all these photographs of them looking good and you know back home and, and you know and, and sacrifice a lot to just send the money uh, back home but live in absolute squalor in in South Africa and 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 this was because they didn't want the shame of being thought of as failures um, in in, a, in another world in another country yeah, what an added layer of pressure to a, a place that's generally unwelcoming to those who come from other parts of Africa, which you detail, you know, quite powerfully. And like, it actually gave me chills when I was reading parts of it, your chapter five on xenophobic violence. So of course, uh, the state has, you know, engaged in rhetoric recently and not, you know, not so recently that... Uh, Migrants are part of the problem and they're stealing jobs and we should really, you know, manage them and some of the hateful rhetoric around last year's elections in South Africa. How did you deal with, I don't actually even know the right way to phrase it, but this, the impulse of xenophobic violence, the daily fear of living with the threat of that kind of violence, and of course the in-between that a state who really doesn't want you there and neighbors who feel even um, sort of empowered by the discourse of the state of, around migrants? 
Yeah, it, I mean, it, it was it was really it's uh, <laughs> yeah, it's hard. Yeah, it's a hard. It's a difficult question to to answer. I mean, I think I think what what is clear is that you know every single day. Um, as women go out to try to do their work, um, go into the informal economy, trying to make a living, they feel their their, their very bodies are foreign bodies, mm-hmm. and there is a sense that they are, you know, they are different and they are othered, and and in and in many ways, you know, this is this is just sort of. Um, added on, you know, the state. The state will tell you that, you know, you, you the the fact that you don't have a, a South African ID, or mm. the fact that you have to every six months or so go to the Home Affairs Office to get your asylum seeker permit renewed. You know, there's there's all these every bureaucratic reminders of the fact that you don't belong. Sure. Um, and 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 on the streets there are these everyday reminders that you don't belong. Either you don't speak the language or you're a darker tone. Um, and 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 it's really I mean I, I I'm not a psychologist. Sure. But but I, I imagine that this this idea of having a body that is always um, under scrutiny and under threat has has a has a huge effect on how you live your life and and, and how you, um, and how you see yourself and 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 the, the, you know I mean but the, but that's not to say that you know using the that's why I love the everyday lens because sure. you see you see there are moments of of grace there are moments of 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 others extending a helping hand. There are shared moments of community, even with South Africans, um, at an everyday level that, mm-hmm. we, that we don't see when we talk about the discourse of xenophobia. So that you know, if you know, a lot of the women found um, support amongst other South African women as well, or other other people who are at the market selling. You know, so there. So it. I mean, for me. For me, what's important is we, for sure, that there is xenophobia, and and for sure, and we've seen we've seen the levels of violence, even you know, very recently mm-hmm. against foreigners. But it doesn't erase those everyday interactions and communications and support and 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 ways of of shielding and and you know. Um, Foreigners, the ways in which communities actually shield foreigners from from um, from harm yeah. um, when the mob comes through. So those are the those are the kinds of nuances that I that I love to talk about. What you know, what it means to what does it mean to be to be a foreigner in South Africa? Yes, yes, yes. It does mean on the one hand that you are. You know, you're a body that's kind of othered. You're othered, but then at a community level and at an everyday level, there are you know there are a whole lot of other connections that are made with host populations that suggest otherwise. Um, 
there's there's um there's grace in the everyday and and I and that's part of what I want the story to surface these moments of grace in the city. I think your your book um, is an example of how to write uh, powerfully, eloquently, but also ethically about violence. I really did appreciate your chapter on xenophobic, in particular the book overall, because of course this notion of grace that we've spoken about today also embedded in it is of course community relations, but also the way that the women resist the the system that they find themselves in through personal relationships and of course, you see how local governance structures and official discourse really challenges their sense of belonging. But they're in this constant negotiation of belonging and security—you know, mo- emotional and physical. So I think I think um, your book is really a triumph. I think in that regard, it's um, I think one that we should all try to emulate. And I'm also mindful of time. I see we've taken up quite a bit of your time already today. And just to begin to wrap up, I wanted to ask you two questions. Obviously, you've written a one powerful book. Um, what's What are you working on now? It's one question I have for you. And I'm also keen to know what you're reading. What books inspire you to do the work you do and as, you know, perfect your craft as a writer of women's experiences? Oh, thank you for thank you for saying that. <laughs> so I know it sounds a little corny, but I truly mean it. I really, yeah. Oh, you're such a, I, I, you know, I'm loving this conversation because you're just showering me with all these feel good. But I mean, I feel like I also like. Of course, it's a little goofy, but I also feel like in the academy. We're so used to being under attack and we're always, you know, critiquing and debating. Let's just have a nice conversation in which, like, because we work alone a lot as well, as of course, you know, you've written a book and you've done a dissertation and there's a lot of lonely moments. So I think like my own politics, like, let me support other women. And even if it's just in an interview. Thank you. I really appreciate what you're doing. I, sh- I-, I should do that more. Yeah. More. <laughs> well, so what am I? What am I doing? Um, I'm writing a, 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 a book. I'm at the beginning of oh, writing good. a book. On, um, it's on a, on a family that set, um, it's the life of this family that set in the time of emergency in mm. Kenya mm-hmm. uh, uh, during the Mau Mau. So it's set in the 1950s, but it spans back um the patriarch was born, you know, was born in the 1800s. Mm-hmm. So it's I, it's an everyday, it's 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 love and life in the time, or in the time of Mao Mao, yeah, Mao Mao religion being <laughs> being the the sort of rebellion against colonialism in Kenya. So that's not the that's not the title, but but that so it's it, you know yeah. So it's a creative it's a creative um, nonfiction. Book that I'm, oh, wow. that I'm working. Yeah, yeah. And what am I? What what books have have had an um, impact on me? Um, I remember reading and just reading um, Alice at uh, uh, um, a, com- a comforts of home, and just Louise White's book, and just oh yeah. It. I mean. I, I don't know why. She's one of my heroes like, too. Her her book on colonial Nairobi, come on, <laughs> so good. Oh yeah, <laughs> I just love love yeah. that book. I just love the way she 
he was able to break down, you know, sort of this kind of theoretical concept and bring it down. Um, and also just the way she wrote about the city. I just, you know, I loved it. It was captivating. I always go back, back go back to her. Um, and then, um, I mean, I'm reading a few other books. I, I love Idichi's Purple Hibiscus. Oh, that yeah. Book spoke to me. That book really, it was the first time I, I picked up a book and I thought, oh my goodness, she's writing a story about Africans in the city. Mm. Middle class Africans in the city. And I just resonated. And then, of course, I've become a fan of since. Um, <laughs> and Googie Watyonga's Wizard of the Crow just made me laugh because I did live through the Moy era and I did live through um, the 80s. And I just thought it was a wonderful, wonderful way of depicting the, the sort of excesses of the state. Of African leaders, yeah. of state. It's so interesting. Yeah, I uh, I lived in Nairobi for a time, and I actually read Wizard of the Crow to try to understand what I was entering. So I love that you cite his book. Also, um, Wainaina's book. What's the name of his recent memoir? One day I will write about this place. One day. Ooh, I love that oh, book. Yeah, I yeah. I love One Day I would. I I love that book. Yeah. It, yeah. It just spoke to me in ways that 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 you know. A lot of books don't, and I, when what I really like is the fact that that there are African novelists now just writing about um, the stories of of, of Africans um, yeah. in ways that I think in in ways that I think we need to do a lot more of, so that we can start to see ourselves as characters in 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 books. Um, yeah, as in ways. Yeah, in, yeah. So it's all about sort of pulling back on that erasure and surfacing, surfacing African life um, in all its fullness, not, not just the extreme parts of it. Yeah, to, to challenge these ideas in the West that, you know, Africans aren't living full rich lives, they're just, you know, they're poor or they're violent or these impulses are everywhere. And it's um, a shame that we continue to have to fight against this in almost 2020. But your book definitely... Um, I think is one for the ages, and I hope anyone who has listened will pick it up and decide for themselves uh, whether or not it's a great book. I'm certainly um, a big fan, Carolyn. I want to thank you for speaking with me today. Do you have any final questions before we um, wrap up or anything you wanted to share? No, no, I don't. Thank you. Okay, it's well. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, it has been fun. Um, thanks so much. This is um, Susan Thompson. I've interviewed Caroline Wanjiko Kihatu on her new book, Migrant Women of Johannesburg, published by Palgrave Macmillan in 2013. Caroline, thanks again. Thank you. Bye-bye.